This is Once for All, where Jude 3 says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Listen in as the faith held by believers of all times is now delivered to you. you go to the fast food restaurant and you order the burger and you get to decide just exactly how you want your burger to be, what fits for you, or you buy a car and you can buy uh, whatever options, details you want in your car as well. We in in America have been uh, what we're used to, uh, having all the options that we've ever wanted, everything that we want to have it your way. And it seems that people have done that also with Jesus. Hey, thanks for listening to this edition of Once for All. It's great to have you with you. I'm your host, Pastor Evan Gigline. I'm the pastor of Faith Lutheran Church in Rogue River, Oregon. And if you want to chime in during today's broadcast, we'd love to do so. We're talking today about uh, this book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up, 12 False Christ by Matthew Richard, and he's on the line with us today. If you want to chime in, toll-free number is 1-844-51-FAITH, 1-844-51-FAITH. If you want to send me an email, I'll get that email right now and read it on the air for you, delivered once for all at gmail.com. Delivered once for all at gmail.com. We are coming to you live this uh, Tuesday morning, June the 20th. Uh, Dr. Matt Richard is the author of the book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up, 12 False Christ. Pastor Richard, welcome back to Once for All. Hey, it's good to be here. Uh, well, tell us uh, again in general, this book, uh, 12 False Christ, what are you What are you seeking out to do in, in writing this book? Yeah, very good question. Uh, with this book, uh, essentially what this book is hoping to accomplish is, is to show who Christ is, and it does it by simply going through and showing uh, who he's not. In other words, um, I mentioned before, I, I think it was with you here, it was a couple weeks ago, we talked about how this book is kind of backing us into who Jesus is. So instead of asserting this is who Jesus is, and then we have a bunch of different theses of who he's not, uh, this one is actually showing different examples and stories and conversations of people who have subscribed to a false Christ. And we hear that as the reader in this book, we hear all these different scenarios and circumstances of people believing in a false Jesus, a Jesus that they've created in their mind. And then as we encounter these individuals, we can kind of check off a list, well, he's not like this, he's not like this, he's not like this. And it kind of funnels us down to the very last chapter where we hear uh, the Jesus of the Bible and uh, who he really is and what he has actually done for us. Well, uh, in... in in case some of the listeners missed some of our previous interviews, they can go over to the website onceforallradio.com and listen to those other interviews as, as we have walked through the chapters of this book so far. And uh, and just as a reminder that the stories that you tell, um, the names have been changed and you protect the identities of those who you talk to. But with that in mind, uh, I'd like to look at our, uh, our, our next chapter on chapter six, where we uh, meet Jack and... Um, I, I love the story, just the way that it happens or the way it comes to be. You go to church uh, Saturday night to get a book that you forgot and see some someone in the sanctuary. You go in there and you you find a couple ladies um, on the floor in the sanctuary. What are they doing? 
<laughs> this is this is great. Uh, yeah, I actually come in on a Saturday night, and uh, there's there's a couple ladies in the church, and uh, I didn't know what was going on, so I simply said, "Excuse me, is everything okay?" And they looked up, and they had a real startlement in their eyes, uh, just very very uh, anxious. And come to find out uh, that the uh, senior pastor named Larry. He actually moved the flags. They're a little bit too close to the altar. And in order to distinguish the difference between the altar and the, the state, we would say, the, the uh, church and the state, he wanted to distinguish between these two kingdoms. He decided to move the flags. Well, long story short, there was a gentleman in the church who um, uh, very, very much uh, was tied to an Americanized view of Jesus, um, where he's actually melded Jesus and uh, the American dream together. And so he saw the uh, movement of the flags. Uh, there was a Christian flag and an American flag. He saw the movement of the flags away from the altar as an attack upon his Americanized view of Jesus. And so these ladies, um, they put the flags back, but then Larry, the senior pastor, said to them, instead of... Uh, you know, having conflict, we'll put the flags back, but then each week I want you to move the flags two inches away from the altar. So it was basically changed by each week moving them two to three inches, and you could actually see on the floor the circles. There's a bu- bunch of circles where the base of the flag had been moved, and they said, well, look how far we've actually made it in the last several weeks, uh, moving the flags that much uh, further away from the uh, altar. So it's kind of a humorous story, but the the, the point of the story is that when we mix uh, the state, which would be represented by the flag, and the altar, which uh, is representing uh, the church, when we mix those together, we end up having a national patriot false Christ. Now, I think this one is probably the most uh, subtle of the false Christ that you present, Um, because... People, when people think of of God, they think of country, uh, you know, apple pie, you know, baseball games in the summer. Um, all of these things just kind of go together. What's fundamentally the difference between the uh, American civil God and the God of the Bible? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Well, the thing that we have to realize is that there are two kingdoms. Uh, we really have these two kingdoms, the kingdom of the left and the kingdom of the right, and that has been that way, boy, dating all the way back to the Old Testament when the uh, Israelites were actually taken into captivity, uh, thinking all the way back to the Babylonian captivity where they had their uh, Israel uh, state, you would say, um, their their faith, and then you also had the Babylonian captivity as well. It's no different uh, in the uh, New Testament when we see uh, the uh, people at that time uh, being ruled by the Roman Empire. Uh, we think of Pontius Pilate and so forth. And, and the Apostle Paul brings this out in the Epistle of Romans. He talks about the two kingdoms. Well, and the reality of this is that when it has the two kingdoms, you have the kingdom of the state and the kingdom of the church, the right and left-hand kingdom. The left-hand kingdom is referring to the state, and the right-hand kingdom is referring to the church. And so they function side by side. Now, what we need to be careful of is this, is when we look at the left-hand kingdom, we want to affirm that it is established by God. Uh, The Lord establishes these left-hand kingdoms to rule with the sword, uh, that is with force. 
And we as Christians, we can respect the left-hand kingdom insofar as that it is being faithful, that it is executing judgment in a faithful, uh, just way. And then we also affirm the right-hand kingdom, which is the church. But the problem that often exists is this, is we end up um, amalgamating, uh, blending these together, and we can create a... um, kind of a mushy middle. And what happens is in our American culture, we have um, oftentimes melded the American dream, uh, the pursuit of happiness, um, the, the, uh, all the aspects of the American dream. We've actually melded that with the uh, message of Christianity. And when you meld those together, you actually end up losing Christianity. Uh, so it's not that Christianity bleeds into the state and impacts the state. It's typically the state bleeds into the word and sacraments, and we lose the word and sacraments. And so in this case, in this chapter, as we encounter Jack, he has really embraced a uh, Jesus who is uh, really much more of an Americanized dream uh, rather than the uh, Jesus of the scriptures. Yeah, I just wanted to read a quote from your book that I think expresses what you just said so well. You say, the, the American patriot exchanges the corporate nature of the church in favor of individualism. A patriot of the nation need not focus on the forgiveness of sins, so this false Christ rather promotes opportunity and options and therefore exchanges God's sovereignty for mankind's freedom of choice. So when we confuse these two kingdoms, the church would have as its... Uh, uh, great center and focus, uh, the forgiveness of sins, where in in the state, um, we don't necessarily want our state to have its main focus to be the forgiveness of sins. We don't want police officers and judges being all about forgiveness. We want them being all about justice. Is that fundamentally the difference you're talking about? Yeah, that's, that's a very, very well put. You know, the thing is, what we have to, to understand is we hear this many times, the separation of church and state, and uh, I think a lot of people will hear that and they say, well, you know, we need to keep the uh, church out of the state. But probably historically speaking, what we see of a greater concern is when the state gets involved with the church. We don't want the state involved with the church. We want the state just to do what the state is called to do which is enacting justice, enacting justice upon evildoers and using the sword to keep order and peace. And any time the state does its job and works in a sense of keeping order, uh, that blesses the church. Uh, if you have a society where there's order, where there's uh, peace of mind, where um, evildoers are held accountable, well, then that just makes it that much easier for the church to minister the gospel, proclaim the word, and administer the sacraments. But when the state is out of control, uh, there's civil discourse in the land, it makes it that much more difficult. And furthermore, when the state actually reaches into the church, when it steps into the church, uh, typically what happens is the message of the forgiveness of sins becomes under attack. And so, again, we want to establish both kingdoms in their proper setting and see that they're both established by the Lord, and they both work for the well-being of people, of society. So when the state is ruling by the sword, keeping order and peace and justice, that is good. And the church works by ministering the word and sacrament sacraments, the forgiveness of sins in that context where there's order. I see almost two levels of the American patriot, as you describe. Um, the, the first level would be um, just the, the idea that the, that 
to be a Christian is to be an American, and to be an American is to be a Christian. Um, that uh, that the, that the God reference in the Pledge of Allegiance is, of course, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that's what they were talking about because this nation was founded upon you know Christian values. That's maybe the the first level, but the second level I think goes beyond that, and that is to say that um, that that. Uh, the America is the chosen nation, the chosen people, just like Israel was the chosen people of the Old Testament. Would you talk about that latter um, level of the American patriot, and where does this come from? Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a mentality where um, America comes across as a theocratic uh, chosen people. And so, in other words, what we do is we look at the Old Testament, we see how Israel is God's chosen people, and then we translate that, real simply simply put, we view America as almost a new Israel, that we are chosen by God, and that we have a divine uh, destiny um, as a country, and so forth. And, and, and here's the fundamental problem. We want to ask the question, why was Israel the chosen people? Uh, why did God bless them? Why did he uh, attach himself to that nation? Uh, and the reality is because of the promise of Jesus Christ. And so we see through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Old Testament, the um, uh, forefathers of the nation of Israel, we see them um, being of prominence because the Lord has attached to them the promised Messiah who is going to come through their lineage. And that Messiah is Jesus Christ, who is going to be a blessing to all the world, uh, you know, through the forgiveness of sins. And so what makes Israel special in the Old Testament is the promise of the Messiah that is attached to this lineage, to these people, that through this nation that comes out of slavery uh, in Egypt, that the uh, Messiah would come um, to all the world. Now, when we take that and we forget the promise of Christ, and we look at Israel and we say, well, they're just a, a blessed nation because of their morality, let's just say, or their their, uh, uh, their, their way that they approach um, their spirituality, well, we can take that and place it above America, and we can actually look at our history as America. And now there's a lot of controversy on this, whether or not we were founded as a Christian nation or whether or not we had uh, our founding fathers being basically deists. Well, we can debate that. You know, people can debate that for a long time. But the reality is that Israel and America are different because the promise was attached to Israel and not to America. And so we stand in the shadow of Israel because of what the Lord has done through Israel, which is bringing forth Christ, the real Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And so there's a real, real big problem when we take Israel and we take that and we uh, flip it over to America and we see that America now is the new Israel uh, who has this divine uh, favor that is going to uh, impact the world. Uh, Israel was that way because of Christ. Um, and apart from Christ, uh, Israel is just like any other nation. What's the best way to respond to someone like Jack? Well, the one thing we have to keep in mind with Jack is this, is that, uh, you know, he, he has this view of, of being a patriot for his country. We need to affirm that. So we want to be careful that we don't diminish that. It is very good to be a good citizen, to be very proud of one's country, uh, to follow the laws of the country, to uh, want a civilized society, to want, ha to want to have peace in a, um, a culture. So we want to affirm Jack on that side, on his left-hand kingdom. 
And it's also, we want to affirm Jack with his fervent zeal for the church, for Jesus, and for the word and sacraments. What the problem with Jack, though, is that he's actually melded and blurred the two together. And so we really need to help Jack understand that there are two kingdoms, not one. That there's a left-hand kingdom with its roles and its position, and that there's a right-hand kingdom with its roles and position. And so the problem with Jack is not necessarily that he has uh, bad intentions. The problem is he has actually melded and molded both of these two kingdoms into one kingdom and thus confused everything. So for Jack, we need to simply pull back and help him understand uh, that he has actually blurred the left and the right-hand kingdom. And as he's blurred that, he's created a false Christ. But as we pull him back and help him distinguish between the two, that is when the real Jesus of the scriptures can emerge. When we come back, the social justice warrior Jesus, stay tuned. The phone lines are now open. Call toll-free 1-844-51-FAITH. That's 1-844-51-FAITH. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. You're probably familiar with the TV show America's Got Talent. Other countries have their own adapted versions. The person who won the grand prize in Romania's Got Talent was Alberta, a very special 14-year-old girl. Abandoned at birth, she was born without arms and half the length of her legs. Alberta sang and played the keyboard with her feet. She's very special because Romania has the second highest abortion rate in the world. It's a miracle she survived the womb. Her foster mom has encouraged Alberta all her young life. The prize happened to be awarded on National Adoption Day, and the cash winnings will be used to promote her singing career and get a ground-level apartment and customized furniture. The rest, she said, will be given to charity. For more information, visit our website at lifeissues.org. And stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. In today's Takedown Minute, Martin Luther explains why government is necessary. He praises government for punishing transgressors, and then he says, we must have that sort of government. But one does not get to heaven in this way, nor is the world saved thereby. However, it is necessary to keep the world from becoming worse. It is merely a protection against and a check of wickedness. For if government did not exist, one would devour the other, and no one would be able to keep his life, goods, wife, and child. God therefore has instituted the sword in order to keep everything from perishing. Through it, wickedness is checked, at least in part, so that government establishes at least an external peace, and no one does an injustice to another. Therefore, we must let it be. But nonetheless, as said, it was not instituted for those who belong in heaven, but only to keep folk from getting deeper into hell and making matters worse. That's Dr. Martin Luther for today's Takedown Minute. With the SRN News Business Brief, I'm Dennis Crowley. UPS is adding a new charge of under $1 for shipments to residential customers during peak delivery periods in November and December. The company says the fees will range from $0.27 to $0.97, depending on the date and type of delivery. It will also add new fees for oversized packages from November 19th through December 23rd, on top of regular surcharges and a peak surcharge on some international air shipping routes. Google is promising to be more vigilant about preventing terrorist propaganda and other extremist videos 
from appearing on its YouTube site amid intensifying criticism about the Internet's role in mass violence. And on Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average added 145 points. With business, I'm Dennis Crowley. Well, the real Jesus, please stand up. Twelve False Christ is the book we're discussing today with the author, Matthew Richard. And um, Pastor Richard, as we look at the social justice warrior Jesus, we're introduced to someone named Simon. Tell us about how you met Simon. Yeah, Simon is an individual that I met uh, at a, an event where there was a city that was actually flooded. Uh, a, a, a massive uh, amount of rain came through a river, and uh, it broke uh, at some, some of the different key points, and the water came gushing into the city and flooded a bunch of homes in the valley part of the city. And so I was in a church about three hours away, and so a group of guys and I, we, we, we got our... Uh, our overalls and all of our tools, and we went over for a couple of days to help uh, with some of the different people in the city. And we ended up in a, a house that was uh, basically demolished. I mean, it's just amazing all the the, uh, uh, the the damage from the water. And so, ended up pulling sheetrock. Sheetrock will absorb a lot of moisture, so we're pulling sheetrock off of the wall and uh, basically clearing out the carpet and the sheetrock, bringing the house back to its bare um, studs. I guess you would say the studs in the wall. And so I'm next to a guy, and we're pulling out nails and so forth, and uh, his name is Simon, and we get visiting, and as we're visiting and doing this manual labor, you can talk and swing the hammer at the same time, and so this goes on for about two to three hours, uh, working side by side with Simon, and come to find out that Simon is what we would call a social justice warrior. Uh, He is there. Uh, because of social justice reasons, and he's there to help the guy who uh, purchased the house, and he's very, very antagonistic and upset about the individuals who sold him the house and also the bank that sold him the house and would not offer him flood insurance. And so he comes across as an individual who uh, is definitely working to help liberate uh, the oppressed in society. And so he's all about a Jesus who is there to uh, help those who are, are oppressed, those that are underprivileged, uh, get out from underneath those that are holding them down. Now, again, I, I find almost two different levels on this as well. Um, I think uh, you have uh, the kind of extreme libertation, liber, liberation theology, theology types, and I'll let you describe that in just a moment. But first, before that, I think you find the more subtle um, – I, I know this this little uh, – well, creed that you mentioned in your book is deeds, not creeds, and and uh, suggesting that we should be more more about you know doing good things than we should be about belief, doctrine, and theology. So, talk about that first. How this notion of Christianity has been portrayed—that if you're a true Christian, you're seen out in the neighborhoods doing good stuff. 
Yeah, yeah, there, there's been definitely a push um, with this mantra, with this idea that we Christians are should be about deeds and not creeds. Um, in fact, uh, the creeds are looked at as, you know, well, they're, they're kind of important, but when it really comes down to it, where we're going to make a difference as Christians is going to be in our deeds. And so creeds are looked at uh, as maybe with suspect. They're kind of put off in the back. Maybe those are academic exercises. That's only for, uh, you know, those theologians uh, who are, are digging in their books. But, you know, the people, if we really want to be real, genuine Christians, we want to be all about deeds. And, well, there's an aspect where we want to affirm that, that we as Christians, we love because we have first been loved, uh, no doubt about it. We serve our neighbors uh, when they come in need out of the love that we've been given in Christ Jesus. However, the problem with this idea, idea is this, is that we do not evangelize by deeds. Now, let me just clarify that. Our, our deeds and the actions that we do, they provide opportunities for us to confess. But in of itself, doing a good work is not going to reveal the Christ of the Bible. And so when we do a good work, yes, do good works as Christians. We should serve our neighbor. But when they ask us why we're serving or when we are serving them, and we have a conversation, that should lead us back to the creeds to confess uh, the, the message of Christianity. Uh, faith comes by hearing, and the hearing is the word of Christ. Faith does not come by the deeds that we do. Uh, we as Christians are not sacraments. We are not the word. We are simply messengers of the word. And so in this case, we have to be very, very careful that we understand that, yes, we do good deeds, but as we do good deeds, those provide opportunities for us to confess the creeds, confess the Jesus of the Bible. So very, very important distinction to make. Now, in regard to Simon, um, what Simon has actually done in his mind uh, that has brought him to create a false Christ is this, is that he views humanity in two categories. He views certain people as oppressed, and then he sees other people as oppressors. And this distinction that he makes is basically coming from a Marxist ideology. Now, what this ends up doing is this, is when we create some people as oppressed and some as oppressors, then the goal of every Christian and the goal of Jesus was to come along those who are underprivileged, those who are oppressed, and then to help liberate and fight against those that oppress, uh, to fight against the big guy, the uh, one that is holding them down, to help liberate those who are, um, you know, have misfortune. And while this is good and true, and this does indeed need to happen at times, the problem is this, is when we create those two categories, we are actually excluding a particular group of people from salvation in Christ. And so when we look at the Bible, the Bible does not create two categories of oppressed and oppressor. The Bible creates only one category, and that is sinner in thought, word, and deed. And so the reality is that those who are oppressed and those that are oppressing, both of them are sinners, and they need to be um, liberated from sin, death, and the devil. They don't need to be liberated from just mere economic injustice. Um, they need to be both liberated from the, the condemnation of their sin. They both, as sinners, need to have repentance and be brought before the throne of grace to hear from the real Jesus Christ. The other thing that occurred to me when you make these categories of oppressed and oppressor, um, who gets to define 
um, the groups that are within those categories. I, I think that um, even today there's disagreement upon who are oppressed and who are oppressors. So who gets to decide the oppressed groups? Yeah, that's a great point, because if we simply, you know, what criteria do we use? <laughs> and so uh, you're absolutely right, because what ends up happening is this, is we create uh, good and bad categories. Those that are oppressed, well, we say these are the good guys, and they're just misfortunate because they've been hurt by a bigger, badder person. And those that are oppressed, those are the bad guys. And so the, uh, the oppressors, they're outside of God's grace. They're outside of any redemption and any help. In fact, we should fight against them and condemn them to the to the nth degree. Whereas those who are oppressed, well, they deserve a compassion. They 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 don't need repentance. Uh, they're the ones who are, are are needing the liberation. And so, by doing that. Um, indeed, what we end up doing is we create the two categories, some that are worthy of grace and some that are not worthy of grace. However, we get to Romans chapter 3, and we find out that there's no one that is good, not even one, that we all are not seeking God, that we have all fallen short of the glory of God, and that we are all underneath God's wrath. And when we hear that, uh, what we come to realize is that those that are oppressed and those that are oppressing both of them need to be brought to repentance uh, they need to be brought down to their knees uh, in confession of sin, and uh, their their hearts need to be toppled uh, by the law and the gospel. And then, and only then, can there be real rest, uh, restoration of those relationships. Um, the 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 way this really changes then uh, one's practice or one's um, religious devotion to Jesus is um, no longer a matter of of scriptural truth, assertions, um, truth statements, these kinds of things that the gospel seems to rest on, but rather this changes a person's uh, religious devotion to be just how devoted to the cause. So you're going to find, you know, we need to find out where the next... Uh, a protest is going to be the next parade, the next whatever, and um, and suddenly the 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 Christian is found back to that system of works again. How much have I participated in changing the culture uh, to make it where it needs to be? And I am resting in some way, at least, my salvation upon my activity. Is that a, a, really the the heart of the problem here? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, what ends up happening is by going this way of this false Christ, indeed, you're always trying to find that construct of oppressed and oppressor. In fact, if you don't see it, then you end up creating it. I mean, for goodness sakes, you end up trying to find that uh, tension in society. So you're looking always for a group of people who are um, underneath somebody else's thumb. And then you say, well, you know, there you go. You're oppressed. And then those people that are pressing you, they're the bad guys. And then the mantra and the goal then is not to use the proclamation of the word, but to use uh, the deeds, the force, the pressure, um, you know, uh, civil action, uh, action of an individual to then uh, help push to get them out of a out of this unjust uh, economic or social uh, context. Whereas the other way of looking at it would be that you come in uh, to the oppressor and the oppressed and that both of them need law and both of them need gospel, that they are all individuals who need the salvation of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of all of their sins. And so then the other way of looking at it will be definitely the proclamation of the word, and it might include, I should say, it might include coming along 
to help address and to alleviate maybe some social injustices, but the focus is going to be on toppling their hearts, uh, bringing them to repentance and faith, because once the heart is toppled, once there's confession of sin, once there's a proclamation of the gospel, then those deeds follow. Uh, We always proclaim Christ and Him first, and then flowing out of that salvation, flowing out of Christ, uh, the Holy Spirit then brings holy impulses to bring forth good fruit and good deeds. So very, very much a fundamental difference in how you approach Christianity and how you approach uh, the ministry uh, to our neighbor in our society. Okay, as you've mentioned before, the point of these conversations is not to uh, uh, arise victorious over your competitor, but rather uh, to bring this person around to the true Christ. So what's the best way to address someone like Simon? Yeah, with Simon, uh, boy, you know, when it comes to Simon, Simon has definitely created that construct between oppressor and oppressed. And so I would suggest that we want to affirm that, that there are indeed cases where people are oppressed. But what we have to help Simon and others like Simon understand is this, is that fundamentally when we look at it, uh, we do not have some people who are worthy of God's grace and others who are not. Uh, The reality is that we all as humanity, no matter how much we are polished on the outside, all of humanity has a corrupt heart, that we've been marred by sin, um, that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed, and that both sides need to be brought to repentance. Both sides need to be brought to the confession of their sin, um, and both sides need to hear um, the absolution of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of their sins, and then, and only then, can there be true healing and that there can be true uh, restoration among these two different groups that may be in conflict. All right, when we get back from this break, we'll be talking about Jesus, the moral example. That right after this. The phone lines are now open. Call toll-free 1-844-51-FAITH. That's 1-844-51-FAITH. It's time for Table Talk Extras with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. One of the things that seems popular to say today about the church is that it's not your grandparents' church anymore. The more I think about this, the more terribly upsetting it becomes. Because the scriptures constantly talk about the Lord continuing His mercy from generation to generation to generation thousands upon thousands of generations. That's that's how he promises it. To those who love him and keep his commandments, he will have mercy to a thousand generations. The Lord intends for his love to go from parent to child, and then from child to their child, and so forth and so on. So I know that my grandparents' church was the church of the gospel, the church that trusted in Jesus, the church that had eternal life because of Jesus' death on the cross. That's their church. And if I have a different church, then that means I don't have the church of the gospel anymore. That means that I don't have a church that that brings to eternal life. It means that I've got something that I think is better, but in the end is worse. It's nothing at all. The oldest psalm in the Bible is Psalm 90, written by Moses, and he begins his psalm with these marvelous words. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. 
The Lord is our dwelling place from grandparent to child to grandchild to great-grandchild and so forth and so on until the Lord Jesus returns. And so let us rejoice that from day to day and from generation to generation, the Lord's mercy is the same. And His mercy is our life. Amen. This has been a production of Table Talk Radio. For more information, visit tabletalkradio.org. This is Sacred Meditations. Keep, O Lord, your household, the church, in your steadfast faith and love, that through your grace we may proclaim your truth with boldness and minister your justice with compassion. For the sake of our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Pray by actually praying. This is sacredmeditations.org. Thank you for making Sacred Meditations part of your day. With us here at Sports Eye, Patrick Foss, Anthony Rizzo thrived in the leadoff spot again, extending his career-high hitting streak to 13 games by going 2-for-3 with an RBI as the Chicago Cubs won their second straight 3-2 over San Diego. Cubs starting pitcher John Lester, who allowed two runs and five hits in six settings, says Rizzo has sparked the offense since he moved into the leadoff position. Yeah, that's been cool to see. Um, you know, obviously Rizzo's not your prototypical leadoff guy, but with the bunt tonight to kind of get things going, and whatever it is, it's working. So we'll, we'll keep uh, keep rolling it out there, I would imagine. At 35 and 34, the Cubs are a game and a half behind NL Central leader Milwaukee after the Brewers lost to Pittsburgh 8 to 1. R.A. Dickey threw seven scoreless innings in his strongest outing of the season as Atlanta Blank San Francisco 9 nothing. Marcel Azuna singled home the winning run with two outs in the ninth, and Miami's 8-7 win over Washington, and the LA Dodgers beat New York 10-6. Interleague play Joey Votto at three hits as Cincinnati beat Tampa Bay 7-3, snapping a nine-game losing streak. This is Esser in Sports. Welcome back to Once for All. We're talking with the author of the book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? Twelve False Christs. And if you want to find out more information about this book, I'd highly recommend it. Go over to the website, cph.org slash realjesus. I think uh, I think you'll really enjoy this book. I sure have. Uh, Pastor Richard, um, the next account is uh, uh, when you meet Ruby in, a, I think, a, a senior community center. And uh, Ruby said she wanted the rest of the sermon. Tell us about Ruby. Yeah. Uh, Ruby is very interesting, and out of all the different people that we meet in this book, I would say she's probably the most complex, uh, very, very complex person. And she has a lot of different mechanics and different uh, uh, assumptions and presuppositions that she has at work in her view of Jesus, in her view of Christianity. And so Ruby, um, actually, I encounter Ruby from the perspective where I had just gotten done with a sermon, and uh, she was a part of this, again, this kind of the senior uh, community living center. 
um, and it was a more of a women's group, whereas a chapel service that I did. And so she was concerned about the sermon. She wanted to hear, like you said, the rest of the story. She wanted me to keep on going on. And so, in other words, she heard the law and she heard the gospel, but she said that the gospel wasn't complete. She wanted uh, the gospel from the perspective of knowing how to live, uh, the gospel being you know, the example that Jesus gives us. And so what is fundamentally going on here with Ruby is this, is that she does not see herself as a sinner. Now, that seems kind of interesting to hear, but she sees herself as a sinner in the past tense. In other words, she was a sinner, and she was baptized, but now um, the effects of sin are not really that um, impending upon her. They're not that much of a concern. Uh, she was a sinner, again, past tense, but because she was saved in Jesus, she then moved to almost a neutral state where uh, she was living in a, a status where she now then need to implement uh, the examples of Jesus to live a best life now, to move on in her moral pursuit of uh, being more moral and more, um, how do we say this, uh, more polished uh, altogether. And so she has really forgotten the idea and the truth that uh, even though we were sinners in the past and we are saved and baptized in Christ, uh, she has forgotten the idea that we are still sinners this day, that the old Adam, the sinful nature, hangs around our neck to the very end of the age, and that uh, we cease being sinners only in death when this body of sin and death is put into the grave and that we are resurrected with Jesus. Um, so she has really fundamentally forgot the idea that she is still indeed a sinner. What I found interesting about this uh, dialogue you had with Ruby, in your, at least as you record it in your book, is um, what she was looking for was some uh, principles for living, some you know, guidelines of the way that we ought to be living as Christians. And you pointed out that that, that was law, and she said, um, yeah, or you said, I preach the law, but she says this, and I'll just quote from the book, yes, you did, but the law was too negative. That's pretty telling in, in Ruby's theology, isn't it? Yeah, and for her, you know, the law, anytime the law was too stern, it would point out the fact that she wasn't keeping it. So to point out the law with its full sternness to Ruby would reveal to her that she has fallen short. And again, we got to keep in mind that Ruby does not see herself currently as a sinner. She sees herself a little bit more advanced than that. And so the law, to her, she wanted a law that was more of a guideline, a law that was more achievable, something that was much more doable. And so she wanted a false Christ who was giving her moral uh, principles that she could grab a hold of in her new profound um, advanced view of herself, and then she would take those principles and those things laid forth from the moral example Christ, this false Christ, and then she could take that into her own hands, and then she could enact it by the power of her own being uh, to live that better moral, moral example, that moral life that she's seeking to have. And again, she fundamentally understands, uh, she fails to understand that she is currently a sinner and that she cannot, in thought, word, and deed, do what she's setting out to do. Um, so again, she, she's upset because she, she, the law is too stern uh, when she comes against me, the law is too stern, and the gospel is too unconditional. And so what she's actually fighting against is this idea of being completely uh, condemned and completely edged out of the gospel. And that's the thing when it really comes down to it. God's law is stern. God's law leaves us empty-handed. 
God's law grinds us down to a fine powder, and it stops our mouths, and it shows us that we are utterly and totally condemned in thought, word, and deed, that we have nothing to offer before Almighty God. And the gospel itself, what's so amazing about the gospel, is it's unconditional. It is all about Jesus and what he has done. But any time we proclaim a very stern law and a very sweet, unconditional gospel, well, here's what happens. is The old Adam, our sinful nature, gets agitated because our sinful nature does not have a way to get its foot in the door and participate in salvation. So if you condemn the old Adam and you make an unconditional gospel all about Jesus, the old Adam, the sinful nature, has no place to... Uh, you know, to get its foot in the door, to to be a part of salvation. Uh, So someone like Ruby wants a law, but it's not, she doesn't want it as stern. She wants it uh, a little bit more soft, a little bit more achievable. And then the gospel, she wants a conditional gospel, something that she can participate in because she truly wants to be a part of this whole salvation process. She wants to remain in control. She wants her will to be able to be a part of this whole salvation thing so that she can ultimately pat herself on the back. Matt, you say this, but doesn't, uh, doesn't First Peter say that Jesus is an example for us to follow? Yeah, absolutely. Now, the, again, we want to make sure that we, we clarify, with, with as well as with the rest of the false Christ, that uh, all these false Christs have elements of truth. Um, so each of these false Christs, there's aspects of them that are true, but then you have like a little leaven leavens the whole lump, a little bit of yeast messes it all up. Uh, what happens is we take biblical truths from the scriptures and we, we, we knock them off center, even if by a couple degrees uh, it messes up this whole false Christ. And so when we think of First uh, Peter, uh, when we talk about First Peter 2, it talks about us, um, you know, uh, looking at Jesus as an example, but this is really talking about walking in the footsteps of Jesus uh, as we bear his cross, as we learn to suffer, as we learn to die, as we learn to uh, bear those uh, sufferings in this life. And so it's not necessarily looking at Jesus and grabbing a hold of him and then uh, following in his footsteps, implementing everything so that we live some sort of, a, of our best life now. It's learning to suffer and to look to Christ and his suffering uh, on the cross, his suffering in the midst of this world, and our suffering as well. So completely different way of looking at him as an example. Are those like uh, Ruby um, who see Christianity as... Well, it would point to this conversion that happened at a point in the past that, um, you know, I was once a sinner, but then I became a Christian. I am no longer a sinner. So the sinner statehood exists back there in in the past. Um, Do people such as this tend to struggle with their ongoing sins, as we all know that they do, and, and eventually cause them to doubt whether I'm really a Christian after all? Yeah, absolutely. The fundamental problem with Ruby is that she does not see things such as Romans 7. She sees that where Paul, maybe we should explain on that, uh, Romans 7 is all about the Apostle Paul talking about how the very good he wants to do, he does not do. And the very evil he does is that which he does not want to do. And he, he goes through this whole struggle in Romans 7. You just hear the anguish in Paul. He's actually talking about a civil war that's existing within himself as he desires to do good 
but yet the sinful nature is with him every single day of his life, fighting and warring against him. And Paul, at the very end of Romans 7, he throws his hands up in the air and says, what help is there for me? I'm just a wretch. And then he hears, uh, then he, he recalls the good news of the victory that we have in Jesus, that there's no condemnation in Christ. And so, the reason why I mention this is that when individuals, um, specific, specifically for me as a pastor, when individuals come to me and they say, you know, Pastor, I'm struggling, warring, and fighting against this sin in my life, I typically say, praise be to God. That is evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work within you and that you are fighting and warring against that which is unjust, that which is plaguing you, that's that which is your sinful nature. Praise be to God that the Holy Spirit's at work in you to fight against this sin. And so that's evidence that you are alive. That's evidence that God is within you by the Spirit through His Word, that, that the Lord is fighting against these sins in your life. And so the problem, though, is when we diminish that we have sin and we act like we don't, we go the way of pride, uh, which is really what Ruby has done. She's very, very prideful. She believes that she has her whole life together. And so if it's not pride on the one hand, then it's despair on the other side. And so it's only a matter of time for someone like Ruby where her sins get out of control to the point that she can no longer manage them by following the mortal example. Uh, and then she will be, have to admit that either her whole theology is wrong and that she's been following a false Christ, or she will be led to despair, uh, confessing that she may not even be a Christian. And that's really the tragedy, is that when it really comes down to it, being a Christian is not having a morally perfect life. Being a Christian is finding your hope in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of all of your sins, and then it is warring and fighting against that sin and thought word and deed, uh, fighting against that old Adam within each of us, praying against the devil uh, in the name of Jesus, praying against the world, praying against our sinful nature, uh, pleading God's mercy and his forgiveness and his strength as we fight in this life all the way to the end of this age where we will again meet Jesus at the resurrection. Someone's listening to what you're saying and they say, yeah, but the 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 Christian should exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. And so uh, you could uh, preach your sermon teaching them uh, how to produce these fruits and then they would have the fruits of the Spirit that should be expected in any Christian. How do you respond to that? Well, I would say that the fruits of the Spirit, as we hear in the uh, epistle of Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit are, are really essentially the attributes of Jesus. And so I'm reminded, I'm reminded of a friend in seminary. Uh, we were at chapel time, and he, he ended up preaching a sermon, and he was talking about an apple tree. And he said, You've, he said, I've never seen an apple tree where you walk along and the apple tree is shaking and grunting and screaming. And, and he said, you know, if I were to ask that apple tree, what are you doing? And the apple tree w would say, well, I'm really, really, really trying to produce fruit. He said, that'd be absurd. That would be a, a basically a, 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 ter a terrifying experience to see an apple tree shaking and, and yelling and screaming and trying to produce fruit. He said, an apple tree produces fruit because it's an apple tree. Um, and the same is with the Christian, is that the fruits of the Spirit are a work of God in us. God creates good works in advance for us to walk in. The Holy Spirit gives us holy impulses, and these fruits of the Spirit, they come out naturally. And when they're not, now we should repeat, when they're not here, uh, that's typically not evidence that we're not trying hard enough. It's evidence of our sinful nature. And then when we're not 
having the fruits of the Spirit, we need to be brought back to repentance, confessing that we have failed in our thought, word, and deed, and then fleeing back to the refuge of the real Jesus Christ and His forgiveness of sins, and then praying, Lord God, create in me a clean heart and renew in me a right spirit. Produce in me these fruits of the Spirit so that I might serve my neighbor and walk in your grace. So what's the best way to approach Ruby and and to present her with the true Christ? Well, with Ruby, <clears throat> with Ruby, it's very, very difficult. Um, again, she's probably the most complex in the whole book. But I would, I would fundamentally say that it comes back to Romans seven. How does she see and understand Romans seven? Now, be, I would just tell the listeners here: if you have a Ruby in your life, and and you come at Ruby with Romans seven, be prepared for a huge fight. Be be prepared for um, a real huge defense. Uh, because Romans 7 really is the, uh, we would say, the quintessential, the most perfect picture of the Christian life. And that Christian life is one of struggle and civil war with ourselves. It is fighting and warring against our sinful old Adam. And so to talk to Ruby, uh, to pull out Romans 7 and say, Ruby, this is the life of the Christian, she is going to react uh, to Romans 7 you know, quite intensely. She's going to say that Romans 7 is about Paul, the Apostle Paul, before he became a Christian. But we want to point out that Paul is speaking all with present tense, uh, the present tense in Romans 7. So this is not something past tense, but it's something currently uh, that Paul is confessing about himself. And we really need to bring her to the reality that she is not... um, She's not pulling it off as much as she would like to think. So we want to help her understand Romans 7 is the life of the Christian, that we all war with our sin. But again, uh, depending on how much uh, someone like Ruby is stuck in her pride, if she's really entrenched in her pride, uh, it's going to be very, very difficult. In fact, she might even lash out in an attack to defend her own self-righteousness. And so, again, it's Romans 7 praying that the Holy Spirit, through the word of Romans 7, would reveal not only her sin, but our sin, and that we might all confess our need for the real Jesus Christ. All right, the book is Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? 12 False Christ by Dr. Matthew Richard. And again, if you want to check out more about this book, just head on over to our, uh, or not to our website, but the, the website where the book can be, information about the book can be found, cph.org slash realjesus. Now, if you did miss any of our uh, past episodes, you can listen to those interviews on our website, and that website address is onceforallradio.com, onceforallradio.com. Uh, Pastor Richard, great to have you on. Thanks for coming on again, and we look forward to our next conversation with you as we continue to look at more of the false Christ as you presented in your book. Thanks, Evan. Really appreciate it. It's uh, been very, very fun. So really appreciate that. Thank you. Yep. And uh, thank you for listening to this edition of Once for All. We do encourage you to uh, chime in with anything that you heard. If you uh, missed the, just the just catching the tail end of the program or if you're listening to this through the podcast or any other way and you didn't get your chance to insert your question, you can still do so by sending us an email delivered once for all at gmail.com, delivered once for all at gmail.com. You can also call our call our toll-free number and leave a message after the live broadcast concludes. The toll-free number is 1-844-51-FAITH. 1-844-51-FAITH. Well, I think Pastor Richard uh, demonstrated so well 
that when we adopt these false Christs, then we lose the real Christ who dies for the forgiveness of all of your sins. This has been Once for All. You can contact the show by sending an email, delivered once for all at gmail.com. You can listen again to this show or any other episodes by visiting onceforallradio.com. Until next time, stand firm in the faith, once delivered to the saints.